0: Welcome to the HR Empowerment Podcast, where we will uncover strategies and new insights from HR professionals who discuss up-to-date regulations, best practices, and the most pressing topics like diversity and equity, leadership, dealing with difficult situations, and much more that affect your bottom line and business. Thanks for joining us. Hey, everybody. Wendy Sellers here, the HR lady. Welcome back to session four of five of our podcast. We have a special guest here, Andrew Swiler. Hey, Andrew, how you doing?
1: I'm doing great, Wendy. Thank you for having me back.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Hey, talk to us a little bit more about, you know, what your day-to-day looks like and how you help people not lose their sanity.
1: <laughs> My day-to-day, I mean, it's funny because, you know, people come to us and they're like, they, they you know, because our, our company's been around for 12 years. So, I mean, the, the company has a lot of HR knowledge internally. But our company operates so much differently from our clients because our clients come to us; and they have five hundred to five thousand employees. They're these big, complex companies, and they need all these special workflows. We're twenty-five people that live in twelve countries. Wow! Uh, we have no offices. We all uh, work in the hours that we want to work. I mean, right now it's almost midnight for me, and I'm you know here talking to you, and I'm I'm still working. Uh, so we have a very remote. Uh, I mean, we are fully remote. We are asynchronous. I mean, we do work, you know, we cross over on hours, but our day to day is very different than, than most of our clients and most companies that are out there. But I mean, we're trying to be as agile as possible. And the reason that we're like this is because at least I personally found hiring people in this type of environment is much easier. We just look for the best people we can find no matter where they are, no matter what they can do, as long as they can speak English and they can communicate well uh and they're willing to work and and learn we're totally open to it which is why i mean we have people we have people in the us we have people in india we have people in ukraine we have people in western europe uh we have people all over the place so my day-to-day is a little bit different from a normal uh hr person but what we find is you know talking to a lot of our our clients and sort of how their day-to-day is uh you know one of the most difficult things for them is just keeping up with the documentation and and keeping up with the constant barrage of information that's coming at them from the different departments. Because I mean, HR, the one interesting thing about HR and especially HR software is it touches all the people in the company, which very few other groups in the company can say i mean other than really the ceo uh you know accounting doesn't even get to see some parts of of certain companies so it's 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 ubiquitous in a company and it's the one piece of software that everyone's using no matter what because even if they're just using it once a week to you know for time and attendance or for their weekly check-in or you know a weekly employee survey it's the one piece of software that everyone's using
0: Well, I have a question here. You know, there's some statistics out there. Um, I'm looking at one right now. It says 36% of HR professionals believe they lack suitable technology, which I know we're talking about here, I want to take that even the next step further. They probably lack the technology skills as well. So yeah. we're, we're talking about, you know, moving everybody to um, software by everybody. I mean, HR people, but then also the employees who need to talk to the HR people need to submit a, you know, a vacation request or an address change. How do we get our HR folks First of all, you know, technology savvy. And then second of all, if we're going to be relying on technology, how do we handle the folks that work for us that their job doesn't involve technology and they don't have computer skills?
1: Yeah, it's it's always a challenge. I mean, one of our biggest when we do an implementation of our of our software, uh, we cut out a chunk of the of the time budget just to training and what i was saying before is the difficult part about training is that when you have like the person that's going to kind of be the focal point of this product they're very engaged and they want to be a part of it but anyone that's sort of like an ancillary part of it like that are just sort of listening to the training it's like well i'm just going to use like the time in attendance like i don't really care right their eyes glaze over and until i mean the hardest part about training people is until they're hands-on and they like get their they get in there They don't really know how it works. And so you have to encourage them to like break things almost to say like, hey, (laughs) so what we do, we set up test environments for companies. We say, okay, we'll take, you know, we'll copy your data, we'll put it in this test environment and you guys can use it for the next month and sort of play around with it. And don't worry, it's not going to break the, you know, the actual production environment. And that gives them a little bit more confidence afterwards. But from what we found, I mean, we, we invest a lot into support uh, because we find that people that do get their hands dirty, which we encourage, break things a lot or, you know, things go wrong. So we always try and make sure that there's some support people involved that can kind of step in and fix any of those issues quickly.
2: Million dollar question for you here uh, is going to make sense to some, but I'll also break it down a little bit simpler, too. So in your world, if you're playing around with coding stuff and, you know, you're you're scripting via Python and and REST API and doing some crazy funky stuff there from the end user perspective. Is there an advantage to having the software look and feel a certain way or modeled after a certain end user experience or certain like office style type product that they're used to using? Or is it more advantageous to create your own realm and your own world and uh, have it written in maybe language that's still a little bit more uh, globally universal from an open source perspective, but Now the interface isn't so integrated in a way. Do do you delineate on the user experience and the way it looks and feels?
1: So we actually our 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 uh, software is pretty unique in the sense that it's built. Uh, with Microsoft SharePoint. So it's integrated into Microsoft SharePoint. So Microsoft SharePoint is a look and feel. I mean, there are people that are listening to this probably that don't use Microsoft SharePoint. They have no idea what we're talking about. It's a strange product, but when you get used to it, you're used to that look and feel, the way it works, the way it interacts. And our product, so it looks native to that. So they're used to like, hey, they go from their their Office 365 and SharePoint, they go to our technology, it looks the same. They they know where the buttons are, they know how it works. They look, They it always looks the same to them. But- one of the bigger issues that that we found, and I'll go even a step further than that, is that when companies do try and do this complex UX and UI sometimes it's not very intuitive for people and a lot of this like new age thinking of like how UX and UI and it's simpler because they're taking it from like the best in class, like Facebook is one of the best companies at at designing things. But unless you have the designers from Facebook, the what you're actually designing doesn't actually work like Facebook because they have a thousand designers that are designing the best piece of software ever made to make it as easy as possible for people to use it. Now, Beyond that, another huge issue that that happens is uh, so personally we have a product that's like monolithic, so it touches all parts of HRMS, and you pretty much can do like a one-stop shop. I do know a lot of very good software companies that just focus on one thing. They're just an ATS, or they're just employee engagement, they're just OKRs, and they do it fantastic. And their product, frankly, their one thing is better than our whole thing. Like they, their one thing is fantastic. The issue is it doesn't communicate well with the other pieces of software everyone has to use. And the issue is when somebody in accounting, you know, needs to do their time and attendance, they got to open this app. And then when they need to do their employee engagement survey, they need to open the other app. And then they have to remember this log and they have to remember this thing and nobody remember. (laughs) And then they forget the workflow. They forget like, what do I have to open to do the one-on-one note-taking I was supposed to be doing? And they can't remember. So we get a lot of our our our. clients are because they've kind of gone through that system and now they're like 3,000 people and they just say like, you know what, we just want one logo that everyone knows. I click on Lanteria and that does the stuff that we need it to do. Right, And we skip over that complexity. But it's difficult because some of these softwares are really good.
2: So I want to tie it real quick into the employee engagement and throw it back to you, Andy, on the back side of this too. When we think about a company that's been around a long time and it has maybe some of that bad data or they're going to be working with you on a data conversion and we reach into the true way back train all the way to 1988, and now we've got that AS400 system and some of that data that we've migrated seven times, and we got to do it one more time to meet the benchmark. These are a series of standards that impact employee engagement. At the end of the day, if your people are tied up doing the data conversions and you've got all this bad data, it's it's going to impact. You got to draw a line, right, Andrew? You got to draw a line and move forward. And, and Wendy, where do you draw that line between moving forward and preserving the history of your organization? Yeah, you know, I think That's um, it's, anyway. It's gonna, go
0: yeah, I think it's gonna be different <laughs> for every company, you know. It just depends. If you're in fast, fast, fast growth mode, that um maybe it's only six, eight months and you can get that data, but you yeah. might also not have time and there's no way you're gonna get this data because people have already come and gone and it doesn't matter why.
1: It's but irrelevant. Yeah,
0: exactly. So there's been many times with companies, even just doing employee surveys and stuff that I'm like, we're gonna draw a line in the sand right now. And then you have to, listeners, you have to educate your C-suite who's getting this reports to say, hey, when it's comparing 2020 to 2021 or 2023 to 2024, remember in 2023, we had no data. So it's going to look really like we're doing really good or that we're doing really bad, but we really don't have anything to compare it about again. So I always like, create template forms and put a giant reminder on the top. Remember any data from, you know, before 2019 is, is not accurate, but this is just here for historical purposes. So you're going to have to work with an expert like Andrew to say, all right, based on your industry and your growth patterns or, or your turnover patterns, this is where we stop collecting data and stop wasting our time and let's move forward. Fair enough.
1: It's an interesting question. Honestly, I would be interested to know, people from the audience to so sort of how often they do go back and how yeah. far they go back and what is relevant? I, uh, Frankly, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I know our clients typically, I mean, everyone's working in four or five year cycles. Uh, and beyond that four or five year cycle, it's very hard to, to gauge. And I think now business has changed so quickly. I mean, nothing is relevant. 2019 isn't relevant to any data today. Um, it's fascinating. I don't know. It's hard. I mean, it, it is, it fascinating. Really is. Like, from like an investor perspective. Like when you look at investors, they always say, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. So <laughs> it could be interesting to look back on some of the data from 1998 and say, how is it relevant to, you know, the macro situation going on now? But that's, that's a really tough question. I honestly it don't is. have an answer to that. It
0: really is. I don't think either one, any of us have answers to that because it's the, the, the reason I always um, ask, you know, I would say, why? What do you need it for? You know, that's, that's, <laughs> and so once we, what yeah, do you need it for? Yeah. You know, the magical why? What do you need it for? And then we can get you the information for that versus spending hours and hours and hours of money to build data that you only needed for this one piece. So yeah. thank you, JC, for that. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll be right back with our final episode of this five part series on harnessing HR software to supercharge your HR department.